0: Okay, and you're all good to go. You don't need to go to the bathroom or anything like that.
1: No, I've gotten all ready.
0: Gotten all ready. Perfect. Hello, everybody. This is Tyler with the Grassroots Living Soil podcast. Today we are getting into episode 12. Um, this is one I've kind of been planning on for a long time. I mean, I've been planning all these episodes for a really long time, but this is one that, um, for somebody that's really prideful, they would probably have an issue doing this and they would prolong it until like episode 1055.2. You know, I, I'm, I'm here to just get out anything that I think is the most relevant information for you guys in your grow in the situation that we're all in right now of just trying to. Uh, maximize living soil and, and maximize our our connection with the soil and, and and our plants and getting these things to really, you know, pull out their their best genetic value so we can have the best medical value, obviously. So without further ado, I've I got um, Matthew Gates here, Xenthanol uh, and uh, Sin Angel. I didn't say that right. So I'm going to stop and let him just do his introductions and tell us all about him because I'm horrible about that stuff. So Go ahead and take over, my man, and let us know who you are and what you're about.
1: No problem. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Matthew Gates. I am an integrated pest management specialist, and I've been working in the cannabis space for uh, 10 years now, actually over 10 years at this point, this year. And uh, you can find me on a number of platforms. I have a Patreon account, uh, Zentanol, which is also a name shared by my YouTube account, Zentanol, and my website, Zentanol.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter using the handles Syncangel. that's S-Y-N-C-H like synchronized and A-N-G-E-L like the uh, mythological creature. And um, honestly, I'm very excited to be talking uh, with you and, and honestly, very, very many other people lately as well about the importance of plant health and um, integrating various techniques in order to achieve the goal of a good crop and a good product. And doing it in a holistic, sustainable way as well is, uh, in my opinion, critical for um, long-term health of the planet.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. And um, do you grow and cultivate cannabis yourself?
1: I do, but uh, lately I have not been doing it um, so much. Just recently, with everything going on, I've been very busy, and um, that has uh, been one of the one of a couple of things that I've had to. Uh, stop doing in order to be maximally productive and help all the other people grow.
0: Hey, I'm in the same exact situation as you. It was my main focus of growing and cultivating cannabis. And um, now I'm just really into learning about it and using those things on a practical level. And I used to grow a lot of cannabis and now I'm just growing a, 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 a amount that I can manage and I can, and that is also obviously legal the amount to, to cultivate and stuff like that. So, um, so I thank you for coming on today. You've got a vast amount of knowledge and we're going to do what we can to open up a few pages of that encyclopedia and that brain of yours today. Um, so getting back to, to what's really keyed us into this whole thing is um, I've been a major proponent of talking about plant bricks and you know, a year and a half ago, I was like, got to get yourself a refractometer and you got to, you know, you got to be squeezing the juice out of your leaves. And I mean, I, you know, I'm a a welder and uh, multiple other different, you know, craftsmen's in my past. So I even made my own pliers to squeeze out my leaves and made them for several other people and then found you can buy them on Amazon for same price that I was making them for and stuff like that. And it's, and, and for me, it, it came back to, you know, walking through my garden And you would see one or two plants that you knew just weren't doing great from the beginning. And then they end up having bug problems or pest problems or mold pathogens. And, you know, I was always constantly chasing down, you know, why is there one plant right in the middle in between both of these plants that are unhealthy, but there's not a bug touching it. It's just, it's healthy, it's strong, it's vigorous. And the clones off of it even just are so strong, healthy and vigorous. And, you know, you'll get a couple of clones from somebody and they'll do really okay. Then you'll get a few clones from somebody else and they'll kill it. They will kill it. And you're just like, I'm never going to get that again. I just lost it and I screwed everything up, you know, and so it kind of get back to like, for me, it was the most relevant information about two years ago about plant health and plant breaks. And I had gotten into uh, SAP testing uh, with new age laboratories, right? When they had kind of hit the market and send in some samples. And um, I broke up my garden pretty, pretty widely. I did a lot of testing. I spent, you know, a couple thousand dollars in testing and it came down to, you know, quantifying certain strains and, um, you know, seeing, you know, some plants that had bricks of three or four you know, and then some plants at a bricks of like eight or nine and just seeing a major difference in health and vigor and growth. And, um, and then obviously now that I know, you know, whenever you're using a refractometer and stuff like that, you know, there's just so much contaminants, you know, you're, you're breasting apart cell walls. You've got so much other liquid in there. You've got so many different ways of, of that being such a far off from what you really need. Um, most recently, um, going into my SAP testing now, I kind of feel like I haven't done tissue testing. I'm going to implement some of that. Um, but, uh, I found that it's, it's, um, been a great tool to look at what my mineral levels are. And, um, I just haven't been successful with moving that BRICS number up higher or further than I think the most I've had in one plant was 19. And that was a beautiful plant and just absolutely amazing. So, you know, for my mind, it was the easiest quantification I could possibly find of why these plants are healthy and why they don't have that is that bricks level was reflecting a higher health, um, and, and no bugs, you know, and maybe later on at the very end, right before your harvest, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Maybe there's just a couple of things that are starting, but you know, the health was so high, it was able to defend against those bugs throughout that whole process. Um, so I'm, accumulating this information from data that I found in just in trial and error and living my life and getting through this. So I'm going to shut up now and hopefully you can just really just break us down some beautiful knowledge of what's, what's the broader picture. What's going on here? What are we seeing? And and what am I seeing? And I'm sure there's other people just seeing a lot of what I'm seeing too. Well,
1: actually I'm glad that you brought up uh, new age laboratories personally. Um, because, um, Oh, you know, I'm I'm forgetting the name of the person who founded it at the moment. Do you
0: happen to remember Scott off Wall. the
1: top of your head?
0: Yeah, Scott Wall.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. So not Scott Wall. There's another individual, a woman, um, oh, who was Jenny Garley. I want to say but... start with an M. I'm 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 embarrassing myself here, so I'm gonna continue. But there was an ind- individual from New Age Laboratories who was having a conversation with my friend. Uh, Russ Brandon on uh, Instagram on a live stream. And uh, they touched on some topics about bricks that I thought was really interesting and important to kind of share. So I'll, I'll do that here too. Um, uh, I have also made videos, and some people know me for a little bit notoriously, I want to say, I think it might be the case, uh, <laughs> about talking about bricks levels in sort of a way that maybe other people aren't familiar with. Um, but now I just realized I'm jumping all over. So let me articulate myself a little bit better. Uh, the conversation with my friend was really useful because I see and an impetus for some of these videos that I've made all come from this um, perspective that uh, it is specifically the photosynthate, um, the sugars that are being produced um, that are the most important aspect of bricks. And I think that there's no way that photosynthate can not be important, right? It's the it's the product, um, it's one of the products rather of of photosynthesis. And it's the important part for powering so much of the physiology, right? Going into the, you know, the root mucilage, right? Um, I just had a live stream on my Instagram about talking about that and how that how that uh develops um and how it feeds the microbiome, for example. So it can't not be very important. But um at the same so so in the conversation they touched on aspects of brix levels like not just the sugars but the like you've touched on the mineral content the nutrient content what is it what is in the sap what is in the phloem channels right and depending on how you test for this brix right if you if you're if you're macerating or mashing up like a leaf for example um brix levels for different tissues can change and they definitely change um, between like day and night as well because of because photosynthesis, right? And in C3 plants versus C4 plants, this is different as well because of how photosynthesis works and how that, uh, how that product of photosynthesis is being um, stored essentially. So different plants will have, you know, a different sort of um, uh, concentration tendency. Um, when I was doing my videos about bricks, and specifically, how sucking insects like aphids and leafhoppers, um, although leafhoppers tend to dr- uh, drink a lot of xylem, uh, so the water channels a lot too. But uh, aphids, you know, very well known. They feed on phloem primarily, and uh, how they were able to feed on bricks plants of a bricks level that was massive. And when I say a level of bricks, I'm talking specifically about sugars, even though it should really be said up front that it is not just sugars. And that is why I thought that conversation was really useful. I have heard people in the industry, um, or at least in the plant health community, talk about how the sugars are um, maybe in some ways insecticidal to these these pests, um, or that they make a plant totally immune to all problems. And I feel like that's a little bit of an oversimplification, at least for the fact that the photosynthate is really, really important for powering so much the physiology. So it's not wrong to say um, that the sugars are important for processing or rather for powering like secondary metabolism, immune response, you know, hormone channels, uh, terpene production, right? Trichome production. Uh, you know, and, and, and all the other aspects of the physical defenses that are just inherent in like building a plant cell wall, right, and, and, the, and the tissues. But um, you can check out on my channel, Xenthanol, a video that I made about how aphids can feed on healthy plants and hybrids plants. And in experiments, and if we're talking about sugars in particular, uh, aphids have been shown to feed, like the pea aphid in particular, Uh, In experiments, they've been able to feed on uh, concentrations of sugar up to thirty-four percent bricks, which is massive, 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 massive. Um, So, it's not that, and and, and in fact, the sugar is a is a phago stimulant. It it incentivizes them, it stimulates them to feed more. Um, It does not stimulate them to feed less. And so, I. I'm curious actually where um, this perspective comes from, I think, because I, I, it actually was very bizarre for me to hear this um, because well, I, had known, I had known that this was so important. Sorry, I'll let you continue.
0: I was just going to say um, it was explained to me that these bugs don't have a pancreas and they can't digest the sugar. So it goes mm-hmm. into their stomach and they can't process it and they in turn could possibly die or just try to find a different plant that has uh, less sugar in it to, to eat. I see.
1: I have heard that uh, explanation as well. Um, Again, but- um,
0: Massive oversimplification of the situation.
1: Yeah, so insects, um, they that is true though. Like, let me be clear. They do not have a, a mammalian type pancreas, but they do have Uh, they do produce tons of enzymes related to like detoxification of like poisons or what would be poisonous to them. Like the terpenes, for example, or secondary metabolites, or, uh, you know, in some cases you can even make the the argument that um, uh, like for chewing mouth parts of some insects, they have a highly melanized like chitinous mandible and that melanin in their mandible allows them to basically sort of whether the physical impact of like, like the, the tiny cuts, essentially, this is sort of a weird articulation, but like um, some plants are just really tough. And if a plant leaf is very tough or the stem is very tough, or if there's like silicon depo- deposits in it, um, or if there's reactive oxygen species happening when the cells burst, right? All of these responses are happening and those will damage the insect's mandibles and their gut if they didn't have ways to offset that and they have enzymes and various things that can do this whether they're aphids or or a chewing mouth part type insect and so they do have a lot of physiological defenses uh, in order to sort of ameliorate that um that sort of problem
0: okay okay i'm getting um i wasn't trying to stop you sorry
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. So, um, so yeah, so, so aphids in particular, this is a really big example to me and because they produce that honeydew at the end and that honeydew is also full of sugars. And, and in fact, if it is true, if aphids could not do this, if they could not process the sugars, uh, they would definitely shrivel on the plant um, because of the osmotic pressure of the food that they're feeding on, of those sugars passing into their gut, um, they don't even really suck in the phloem sap. They are kind of like a living tap. They penetrate the, the tissue um, with a stylet and then it, it goes down into the phloem channel. And they're basically through positive pressure because basically the pressure of the, uh, the phloem is like between maybe, it depends, right? But like maybe between one to sometimes even like three megapascals, which is actually proportionally really massive. Um, three megapascals is like, um, geez, uh, it's, like the, it's, like more, it's like more pressure than is the pressure of the tires in a big truck, for example. It, it's actually quite egregious. Uh, it's just on a very small minuscule scale.
0: Like if you have a straw and you're sucking water through it and you had a really pinhole kind of hole in it, it's going to squirt out water as you're sucking through the straw kind of like. That's an excellent
1: metaphor for it. Absolutely.
0: And and so, so they really,
1: so it's like, you know, they don't have to do anything really to, to siphon out that phloem. It just kind of happens um, passively. And so it fills up their body and they have all these enzymes that come out of their gut and to tax the, the sugars and the toxins and the things. And, um, in some cases, you know, immune, you know, they also suppress the immune response of their plant host as well. So they do a lot of things. They have a very sophisticated, uh, physiology, their mouth parts, their innards, all of that to make feeding as easy as possible. But, um, that doesn't mean that they're always super successful. And uh, especially in the case of aphids, one of the ways that they've been able to be so successful is that they're usually very specialized. A lot of aphids are specialized on one species or a group of sort of similar species, um, or at the very least two different ones, if they're the types that migrate and change hosts between like a summer Uh, Or rather, yeah, summer hosts and winter hosts, or autumn hosts. They tend to move. There's a there's a a large swath of uh, aphid groups that do this. Whereas others are sort of generalist, uh, but most are not. Most are specialized.
0: Wow. Um, Anything else that you want to touch on on uh, quantifying? Well, ultimately the goal is is I was using bricks to quantify my healthy plants, segregate my unhealthy plants in a certain sense uh, to know what I'm going to move forward with and using it as a tool to decide, you know, a lot of cultivation techniques, what tools or tools or methods can we use to look forward in the plant health and the crop health uh, in trying to, you know, steer your grow in a healthy direction?
1: This is where I get in trouble with some people because I actually totally agree, uh, or rather what I've already said gets me in trouble. But this is the part where I say that uh, I actually think that SAP analysis is very important and is very good. And um, I don't ever mean to imply that that bricks levels are not important at all. And I think that it is a, a, a proxy. Like, um, it is a proxy, right? It, it is something of a proxy because you can't really tell the minutiae of exactly what's going on like cell to cell, nor would it be very useful for you because things are constantly changing in the plant. Uh, immune responses like um, like, have been documented, you know, even just like the, uh, as soon as a plant like detects like in its immune response, we have what's called pattern triggered immunity and vector triggered immunity. One of them detects the foreign objects that let it know, hey, this is not good. Let me prime the immune system. The other one is a response to those suppressants that I told you about earlier that suppress the immune system. They recognize those because the other ones won't. And then those start a immune response that can happen locally in the span of a few seconds. And then it changes out, you know, radiates out over hours and even days in some cases. And so for me, I think that using SAP analysis is still a viable tool. Um, I don't mean to ever sort of um, you know dismiss it out of hand. Um, I just think that maybe some people's understandings of it can be um, maybe a little bit uh, underutilized and, and it could be uh, improved. Um, that's great too. I, I, yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's an important thing to talk about. Uh, I have um, sometimes um, you know, uh, started some arguments with folks when I didn't really mean to in that case, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to sort of clear that up somewhat. But as far as answering your question for tools for plant health and how to assess it, um, generally speaking, I tend to not utilize um, things beside uh, the the. I'll say it this way: the things I tend to utilize most are like pathogen tests, um, but that's usually in response to some sort of symptomology that I'm already seeing. Um, Of course, there are things like like testing for the pH of the substrate that you're growing in, in this case, soil. Um, uh, Being able to assess the the microbiology in the soil is uh, something that is also really cool. And I'm actually very excited, since you brought it up, to talk about how people in the future, I think, or somewhat now, but I think more in like the next five or 10 years, I think the democratization of basically genetic sequencing technology will allow people to, like when they do IMO, for example, well, what are the microbes that you're getting? What are they really? I'm not saying that it's wrong to do something like this without knowledge, but it can be that much more easy, especially if you're using like local soil around you. If you're incorporating these soils into your growth space, uh, and you're curious which ones they are, I think that there's, a, there's going to be a real change in our ability to actually capture those microbes and do a lot of good with them. Uh, but the start of that journey requires us to actually know what we're looking at uh, to some degree, and of course have techniques that are useful to that end. And then I feel like we can sort of bridge those two together and kind of like seal this gap of knowledge Once we have that information, and especially once people can assess that and use that information on an individual level and don't require really expensive testing uh, that has to be outsourced. Once that becomes something that people can do for themselves on a computer, on on an iPad, on a phone, um, I think that is going to be an incredibly uh, illuminating effect. And, uh, I think especially for the living soil, um, space, I'm, I'm very excited to see more of that because microbial dynamics are very capricious and complex. And, uh, as they say in science, um, they can be kind of stochastic. They can be sort of not predictable always. Um,
0: wow. Yeah. Okay. So, in, and that would be specifically getting down to like DNA sequencing the biology that's in your soil is really what you mean, right? Yeah, basically.
1: Um, and, you know, like, for example, if you had markers of some kind, you could tell if you like take a soil sample and you, uh, you know, going through the processes, like a lot of times also microbes can't be cultured. So even if you could like put them on agar or, or, or um, uh, select them in some way like that, Uh, you're only going to get a small fraction of microbes that are going to be able to exist on whatever culture you're using. And in some cases, um, you know, the culture can't just be some simple agar material media. It has to be something very unique and very specific and uh, time-consuming and technical and require a lot of, uh, you know, tacit knowledge about how that, what works. But if people can do a sort of a genetic sequencing that is um, more simple than that, then they can kind of tell maybe like at the family level even or at the order level how many fungi how many bacteria okay cool well which fungi which orders which families which genera which species and um that's possible then it also might be possible to if you know that these species are good for xyz effect and they're and if they're generally going to be useful uh to that end Maybe you can even uh, encourage them and then transfer them to another place, Uh, you know, like if your friends need some help or if if you have a friend who's starting a living soil grow and they need a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of a colonization event, you know which ones you have in your soil and which ones they might be deficient in, possibly all because they're just starting. You don't know. And so I'm just really excited for us to be able to, to utilize that. But I think that's still a little bit ways
0: off. So you'll have to check out, um, and I, I would like to say that they're like 95, 99 percent down the path that you're you're doing, talking about. Um, in episode three of our podcasting, we had David Olson on. He's the uh biologist that creates our concentrated biology and our microbial inoculants. Um, he specifically has partnered with a company called Biomakers. Uh, so you might want to check out check out biomakers because they You submit your soil samples to them and they do genetic genome testing, genome testing on there to see what your population looks like. And then like I got a printout of my soil where it comes in a pie chart and it says bacteria, fungi, um, and then it's breaking down what's beneficial and what's non-beneficial to it. Um, so episode three of our podcast, um, David Olson goes very in depth with, uh, the work he's doing with the biomakers, um, in evaluating, um, soil health on, on that level. So definitely if you get a chance, go onto their website and, and hopefully they're going down all those different paths correctly, like you said, but, um, that would be really cool if, um, companies like them, cause they're right here in Sacramento. I think when I had to do my sample, it was like $350. Like it was really expensive, but, uh, for, you know, as far as doing a soil test, I'm used to a $25, you know, you know, you know, very simple. So I think no matter what, just because there's a company there, like you said, like we need to be able to do this on our phone. We need to be able to do this in the field. We need to be able to do this in real time right now, you know, and be able to take that data and move forward with it. Um, we have our concentrated biology products, uh, in a few facilities, And we've requested ahead of time that they test their soil with the biomakers uh, so we can see what's there. And then we hit it with our concentrated biology and then test that soil again weeks later to see if that colonization has actually occurred and is taking place. Um, And I'm very excited. We have a facility in Las Vegas, uh, Fleur Cannabis, uh, that is just outrageously excited to, to get involved with this genomic testing and, and, uh, seeing if we can really colonize our soil in correct amounts. Um,
1: that does sound like a lot of what I'm saying here. And I think that's, that's really exciting and cool. I'm glad that you make use of that too, because I think that, um, you know, it's, it's one of the, one of, one of the best ways to confirm, you know, what you're seeing, cause you might even see things with microscopes and that sort of, sort of a thing, but, um, you know, more and more research shows that, like, you can have a species, like Fusarium is my go-to example for this. Um, there's tons of different species of Fusarium, and even within the species of Fusarium solani or oxysporum, you know, you have different strains. And we've, we've been able to test that uh, some strains that come out of nature are, you know, not particularly pathogenic, even if they're in the Fusarium solani like species complex or whatever you want to call it. Um, And sometimes they're uh, still pathogenic. Pathogen and mutualist are two points on a spectrum and those interactions can be uh, multifaceted. And so if you happen to know that if you get Fusarium, if you see this Fusarium, but you see that's a strain that's actually beneficial, um, you know, that's a good thing to know but we don't always have access to that information. So that's very cool to hear.
0: And is it possible that fusarium over can, if if fusarium was on a very small level and it was surrounded by a large amount of beneficials, that it would not be able to be pathogenic in a certain sense? Uh, Potentially. Potentially, okay.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that speaks to just the sort of sometimes capriciousness of a microbiome dynamic you can like a lot of it is what got there first how did the colon you know what i mean like there's a history of that colonization and as cultivators i think we can facilitate like a plant beneficial arrangement and maybe it makes sense to colonize with you know certain microbe populations i know i'm being abstract here but like like you're saying you know uh certain groups might Play nicely with three out of the five, whereas other ones might play nicely with five out of the five, or one out of five, or maybe one of them's a facultative parasite of fungi, and it's a bacteria, and you know, like things like that happen. seeds, for example, um, I was reading a paper about how a it was a tritrophic interaction between um, a bacterial species, a fungal species. That was a micro I think it was a mycorrhizal fungus for a plant so it had that relationship with the plant but in order for it to, to um, be most efficient I think with oh it was with mining for I want to say it was for phosphorus actually and apparently oh yeah that's what it was now that I'm saying it it was it was actually the so the, so the fungus had the enzyme enzymatic capacity to uh, break down chitin in the substrate in order to extract nitrogen. That's what I think it was actually nitrogen not phosphorus. Wow. Um, and but the thing was was that it wasn't doing that w- without the help of these other two microbes. One of them was a an oomycete, and one of them was a bacteria, if I remember correctly. And so it was only through sort of the interaction between all three of these, uh, which was not all to do with the plant. Like these were free living bacteria just in the rhizosphere. And, uh, you know, just that kind of, that just kind of, you know, it's a good example of how maybe we can make things even more uh, efficient and making things a little bit more um, useful in that way. And also in that, to that end, we can culture these interactions and have sort of a three sisters situation, you know, corn, uh, beans and squash, right? but instead of that, it's mycorrhiza, rhizobia, and some other sort of microbial component. And I'm excited to see some of that sort of continue.
0: Great, great. So what do you think the possibilities are of chitin-consuming microbes being a benefit on the leaf surface of of your plant?
1: Well, um, I was talking about it recently, but uh, if you're well, on the surface of the leaves in particular he, deploying microbes can be somewhat difficult because it's actually a very um it's actually a very difficult surface to live on you've got ultraviolet radiation in nature right like out in the in the field you have um you know you have the uv radiation beating down on you um you have like exodus and things and, and a waxy cutin layer that can make it a little bit, um, uh, what's the word looking for? Just hostile <laughs> to your, to your life. Um, that's actually been a major problem in uses of like, of various biocontrols, like bacteria and fungi, but also even viruses for that matter, for like caterpillars, um, that then affect those. But if it did, if you, if we're talking about a, a microbe that can destroy chitin, then there's a lot of benefits, right? Because chitin course makes up the cell walls of fungi but it also makes up the cell walls uh or rather it's the polymer that makes up the exoskeleton of insects and mites um my favorite microbe uh do you know it
0: no i don't no
1: it's it's buveria bassiana uh it's an entomopathogenic fungi and a lot of people utilize it and it's so beneficial and so useful because in a lot of plants it actually can be an endophyte so not only Going to be an epiphyte on the surface of the leaves, but it can also, yeah, get into the plant. And um, when a when an insect comes in and starts feeding on it, maybe it ma- mashes it up and, and ingests the the tissues. That's going to be a very bad day for that insect, potentially. Um, of course, there are other factors and. Maybe the strain you got is a virulent strain that has been you know, uh, cultured, and there are technicians that make sure that the product that you get from a commercial source is gonna do what it needs to do. Um, on, on that note, we sometimes see examples of buveria that they get, uh, they get reproduced often, but they don't get to reproduce on a host, like an insect host, and they lose their virulence traits over time. So they actually stop being very helpful in the way that we're talking about here. So it can be uh, really misleading sometimes uh, if you're getting a bassiana culture and you don't know its origins or or how it's being maintained. Um, And that goes for other microbial processes too. Uh, The plant microbiome interaction, uh, it it can, I mean, it can change just temporally. It's a spatial and temporal, uh, entity. And, um, as the, as like populations rise and fall on the phylosphere or in the rhizosphere, um, you know, those populations do change and, uh, sometimes genes get lost. Sometimes, uh, effects are not there when they were in the past. And, uh, although that's kind of niche and hard to quantify now, I'm, like I said earlier, excited about the ability to like really dig deep and and see what's going on at the genetic and molecular level.
0: Yeah. Cause looking at that population is really going to tell you, you know, where things are going, how, like you said, you know, what the building blocks were when it was created and how things got to where they are at now. Um, Very interesting stuff. Um, I'd say the next question that's lingering on my mind, it's kind of like an obvious answer. It's just like, I'm kind of looking for the science behind what I'm seeing. Uh, mm. Consensively here in California, in Northern California, um, this year was, you know, every year we have really bad fires. Okay. Uh, this year in our specific area, um, it was really bad, you know, f- fires within a handful of miles of multiple farms that I know and farmers. And um, the consensus was, is the fires and the smoke you know, got rid of all these bugs or didn't allow the bugs to proliferate. You know, I'm sitting over here like, I just had the best year I've ever had, everything. I've got the healthiest soil so far. It's been four years now. Like I'm doing my soil testing and my amending. Like I'm, I'm doing all the right things. But was it actually all this, you know, crazy amount of smoke for a long time that could be giving us a break on our pest pressure? And if so you know, are people going to start fogging their greenhouses or fogging their rooms, you know, or smoking them out somehow to to kill these bugs, but benefit the plants? Like, I'm sitting there smoking a joint, like thinking about like all the different play, crazy places this can go. So hmm. settle me down and, and give me some science of what's going on.
1: I like, I like that you're bringing up that, that subject in particular. As a native Californian, I also feel very um, extensive grief about you know the the our fire ecology in general and how we manage it. Um so yeah so I actually wrote about this um recently uh, uh, uh with regards to the wildfires and this was for um Canna safe, I believe yeah and I'm not actually sure if it's got if the article got published I didn't actually check um, or if I ha- or if I did check, um, it's been a while, and I have, <laughs> don't remember the top of my moment. But you can check it out in Canada Safe, possibly. <laughs> but anyways, we talked about wildfires, um, and particularly how that will affect pest pressure. And so, um, there's two kind of sides to this. On the one hand, fires will definitely destroy. Like and depending on when the fires happen, I think is crucial, because if they're happening like they do uh, usually during the summertime, that's when a lot of insects and and other arthropods are out and about, um, you know, living their life. And of course, uh, what makes insects in particular super successful ecologically is that they got wings, they developed wings, and basically most insects have wings as adults. Um, and in some form or another, not all of them do, but, but um, some of them have lost the ability over time, but the ancestral uh, uh, group that, that, that most people interact with is, is what it is because of those wings. So they can fly, they can, set, they can get out of the way uh, to some degree, some better than others. And so on the one hand, if the fires are happening during a time when these insects are active and they can actually move and migrate then they will migrate and they can maybe, they'll be forced into areas where people will see more pest pressure, potentially, or potentially into other natural landscapes where people aren't gonna be noticing it. On the other hand, like you said, like you say, uh, the smoke, the fire, those things are a lot of insects, some insects are actually attracted to it, believe it or not, because they actually rely on the fire um, ecology to reproduce but most insects don't and all of that smoke and particulate matter, um, they're gonna pick that up and they're gonna not wanna be anywhere near it. So I think there is a, there's a sort of a dual effect here. There's a protective effect um, from the smoke, but there's also a facilitating effect for migration that could be very bad for other people. And then of course, that's, all, that's, that's happening in spring and summer, but in autumn and winter, which still can see fires, um, could still see problems even when it's in the, the, the wet part of the dry season here, um, you can run into an issue where um, for the insects, they basically they're all pupating. They're all in some sort of overwintering state less so here in California, where um, it tends to not be like a, you know, a a really snowy winter depends on where you're going. I am biased because I am born and raised in San Diego. So I live in the subtropical zone where you know
0: what snow is.
1: Basically not. It's novel. I remember visiting my grand. I visited my grandparents in Kentucky uh, a few times and the snow was always this like amazing thing. Also rain for that matter. I can't get enough of it. I love rain because to me, that's a precious commodity and, yeah. and like, so that's a means for celebration, uh, but for yeah. other people, it's um, not. So, which I totally get, but um, yeah, so the fire can wipe right through a bunch of overwintering populations uh, and that will affect the pest pressure as well.
0: Um, so so that's a kind of. Chance that fires are beneficial to the crops that made it out and for the areas that the fire went out you know a lot of these fires were out you know once we get around to the prime flowering season you know mm-hmm. you're two or three weeks into flower and we still got some smoke and then you know things are starting to die off come october when they're finishing so it's like you know for the people that don't get the smoke damage on their end product it might be might be part of a benefit Or when you're in the valley and there's no smoke, now you're getting all the bugs that were in the mountains.
1: Basically, yeah, and 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 that's just the the herbivores, right? That's just the 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 pests. But uh, you know, they're like I think over ninety percent of in some in some statistics, ninety percent of animals are insects, and a lot of those are pollinators or other organisms that somehow regulate. Uh, plant life and also in, in a way that facilitates their growth, but, or in other ways, like, you know, as herbivores, they, they eat them and they reduce the numbers and population. And so those interactions that are very uh, sensitive and, and sort of um, ephemeral and hard to quantify, uh, those also get lost too. So it's not all a benefit necessarily, but certainly for the pests, uh, if they run out of places to eat, um, then of course that's going to be very problematic for them.
0: Mm -hmm. So this is kind of chasing down the whole thing of like, you know, I look at part of this industry is like, great, here's a foliar spray product for when you've got this problem and you're going to put a bandaid on it and hope you can make it through, you know, that has always just infuriated me so much, you know, when you clearly see a product as a bandaid and we want to chase down the beginning of how do we create the right situation and let this plant step out in the game because it's an athlete and it's, we're asking it to run this race with its best foot forward. So it can make it through that successfully and be a champion. You know, everybody's looking for these plants to produce a a champion grade product, you know, but you know, it's, it's in my mind, it's like setting it up for that success. There's, there's so much setup that has to come just like an athlete, anybody who, you know, has ever won a gold medal in the Olympics, like they've been training like that since they were four or five years old, maybe even younger than that. So next question I'm going to have is like, what can we do to set ourselves up best, um, to get ourselves into that healthy plant zone?
1: So I like to talk about the what's the hollow genome theory or the hollow biome theory of, um, of evolution. So basically, it's the idea that it's like looking at everything kind of on a genetic level. And I know that's kind of a 1,000 foot or 10,000 foot vision of the situation. But uh, when I talk about my IPM techniques, I always am quick to say the word holistic and sustainable right afterwards. And I mean that very uh, intentionally. It's not just some sort of a gimmick. And it touches on what you're talking about here. If you look at your environment, if you're trying to be sustainable, you have to understand what your environment is. Where are you growing? What are the plants around you, right? What are the, what's the location that you're growing, you know, in, in, in the 10 mile radius? Are you near a forest that's protected? You know, are you trying to facilitate those organisms? Well, you should know about the, the things that you're applying. There are chemical like in in IPM there's sort of a traditional five um, categories five or six depending on how you uh, look at it of like techniques like so you've got like your physical controls which are like barriers which are like um, things like UV radiation even that physically kills through like a physical process of the UV radiation just smashing through that DNA and screwing it all up uh, you got chemical controls, obviously, you've got biological controls, uh, and then you've got cultural controls, too. And cultural controls are like how you operate, how you do things, uh, you're like your logistics, um, you know, how are you scouting for pests, right? And, and that's sort of a thing, too. It's, it's sort of like an, an all, a catch-all. Uh, but, you know, it goes further than that traditional five-set group, because, You should also understand. You know, you should be able to recognize. Is this actually like if you see some random insect on your plants? um, I'll tell you what. uh, I get two main questions from people um, more than, and they're and they're never pests. People ask me and freak out about predatory mites and springtails, and I guess I'll throw in mold mites for that matter. People ask me about those three more collectively than they ask me about any other kind of pest, and it's because they don't know. What yeah. they are. They don't know that it's a problem. And it's and also for people who I support in the living soil um, community, uh, you know, they are very active. Those, those three groups are very common because they love it when it's moist. They love like a nice, rich, luscious uh uh, you know, soil microbiome, right? I mean, how else am I gonna say it? So people who are just getting into for the first time don't have this background. And so I guess without being too long-winded, I guess I'm trying to make the point that people should know their area. They should know the interactions between the plants in their area and the other organisms for that matter, your local ecology. And then you also want to know the products and the techniques, you know, not necessarily things that you buy, but what you're doing. How is that going to affect? Why is it that whatever technique you're using works the way that it does. And um, I'm not asking people to become a biochemist, genomicist, um, you know, cultivator or anything like that. But um, if you know, like, for example, if you know that Bouveria bassiana is an endophyte, uh, or at least usually is, and you know that it is for the plants that you're growing, right, then you know that that microbe can be in your plant and then you can maybe do a test to find out if it's in the plant you know uh, later down the road after you apply it right you can you can understand that has this protective effect Uh, but if somebody's just spraying it and they just know it in this sort of like reactionary way then they just kind of think of it like a more complex chemical
0: yeah and
1: uh, you know what i mean and i think it's it's like buveri bastiano is in particular is a good example for this because like other beneficial microbes, it can get into the environment and in some places they don't let you use it because it's a very broad spectrum microbial pathogen of insects. It can feed on and and hurt uh, populations of like native uh, bees, for example, if you're not careful. It can hurt populations of other organisms that might wander into your area that you're not not intending to harm. And um, as a person who's a big insect supporter and knows a lot about them uh, you know I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind and I think that's within the um, sort of like the that is sort of the point of living soil right you're trying to be sustainable you're not trying to do harm to your local environment while cultivating in fact you're trying to facilitate yeah um, should be exactly right and so when you tap into it you should know what you're tapping into essentially
0: Uh, yeah are you tapping into a healthy system that's going to benefit you Or do you have some things you're going to be fighting throughout that process all the way through there? That's very, got me contemplating now, got me thinking, man, this is awesome. So just to uh, bust out into some other things. You see a lot of farmers, you get a lot of people reaching out to you. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, obviously it's pandemic has shut down physical connection and going to farms a lot, but I'm sure you probably still get out to some now and then when you get a chance to, especially being in California, mm. um, what do you think the, one of the, one of the biggest or the biggest or the top five um, biggest mistakes cannabis cultivators are making? And I would say specifically in the living soil sector, if not everybody. Um,
1: in security in general, whether it's cybersecurity, physical security, biosecurity, um, there's a saying that goes like this, people don't pay for security until after they get robbed. And I think that's very true for IPM as well. A lot of people don't even consider the amount of people I've worked with who seek me out because they are already aware of the problems that could befall them and want to keep that from happening is a small fraction of the, of the calls that I get. The much, more, the much more greater proportion of people are in the middle of a problem or um, have already been sort of uh, injured in some way, shape or form by like a massive pest outbreak or something. Uh, on that note, especially for cannabis, uh, I was just reading a research report about uh, the budworm moth, Helicoverpizia, And how it's becoming a massive massive problem in cannabis partly because of climate change but also because uh and there was this neat graph that was showing like um the population increase of cannabis cultivation uh in north america i believe and it's skyrocketed right it's really really there's tons more people growing cannabis and the infrastructure for it is lacking so so To answer your question, some of the things that people are doing wrong, I feel, is that it's hard to say this, but like I know that most people who are trying to grow cannabis are very passionate about it. They want want to grow it because it is cannabis. They want to grow it because it is something that is um, perhaps sacred to them on a spiritual level. Perhaps it is medicinally very important for them or because they want to provide for other people. But whatever the reason, I think those are all valid. the issue is that some places are just not going to be very conducive to that that's just how it is Uh, you know you can't grow coffee everywhere but that's a very more specific thing but you get what i'm trying to say some places are going to be okay some places are going to be not okay some places are going to be great you know all of that could be arable land but they're not all going to be the same and that's because of the reasons we just said because holistically your environment matters what's going on around you matters and I know for my friends up north especially on in Humboldt for example and uh, the Emerald Triangle generally um, you know a lot of people that I've worked with up there you know shout out to Moon Maid Farms for example big supporter of them um, you know they are growing in and amongst the, the various other plants in the forest and everything and so you kind of can't separate yourself. It's very hard to sort of protect yourself. So you have to be in the traditional sense. So you have to be you have to work with the environment in a, in a lot more of a comprehensive and sophisticated way. So I think people are like top five reasons or top five things uh, they're not they're not considering their circumstances, you know, broadly. Um, they're not considering the location that they're going to grow specifically. They're either ignorant or for whatever reason, don't think that pests are going to be a big problem for them, which uh, I think is a, is a major um, flaw <laughs> in the planning stage. Um, and I think also a big one is that people try to grow too fast, too quickly. Now, I'm not a, I don't have like a master's in business or anything like this. And I, and I understand the concept that If you're looking at your environment and your competitors in a a competitive marketplace, unfortunately, you might come to the realization that the bigger people are going to get bigger and the people who are not going to grow to compete with that competitive force are going to be outclassed uh, potentially. And I think that worry is understandable. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur too. I understand that. but that's the issue: is that if you do grow too quickly, and there's no infrastructure, universities aren't doing research until just recently. Uh, I mean, much to do and about nothing. The government, various governing forces, are not very supportive. They're treating it like a, which it is, a, sort of a political cudgel and fulcrum by which they can like be like, oh, you want to vote for me? I am for cannabis, and then they like maybe bring it back down when it's not such a big issue because they have other constituents who are against it. So, you know, under that environment, it's like, it's a coin toss, whether or not that makes sense or not. So I don't know if that's five, but at the very least, those are some big ones.
0: Okay. Now um, just to tear deep into IPM, hmm. um, I've in the past have been suggested um, a product called Suff Oil X and have seen, um, just like an instant, like spray it on the plant. Once everything's dead and the plant's like, ah, ah like, thank you. I love I'm loving this right now. And be, you know, if I had a problem and I used it on those plants, it seems like it does great. It's awesome. Um, uh, because I know there's going to be people that are listening to this conversation because they're in that Oh shit moment. They're there, mm-hmm. they're already injured. They're hurt. And you gotta save your ass right now. You gotta move forward. Um, what are your suggestions when people are in that oh shit moment and they need to correct and move forward? The
1: biggest thing that I could say, which is quite easy to do, is you have to go out and you can you have to assess and identify what the problems are. That's easy to say, hard to do sometimes. Maybe it's a pathogen that's invisible to you, but that's why I advocate strongly for people knowing what the potential problems are before you even put a seed in the ground or a cutting you know, in the ground. Before you do any of that, you should become familiar with what these problems are. Assuming you haven't done that already, the best thing that you can do is try to find that information out, which is why I make a lot of that information available on my YouTube channel, or, or, or even if you don't want to use my own resources, uh, there are university extension agencies you can contact in a lot of cases. Sometimes you cannot, depends on where you're growing. But uh, those experts can identify some pest that you might be able to send a sample to. Once you've identified what those problems are, then you can know what the name is of the thing that you're dealing with. Then you can go on to look at what are some of the potential treatments that you have. Um, I know that's a very simple problem solving answer, but uh, you'd be surprised how many people um, sort of just kind of throw up their arms in the air um, and panic because like you say, it's a crisis mode. some gen- So I don't like to give treatments out without knowing what the context is, because some treatments are just not going to work effectively. And I don't uh, I've encountered a lot of situations where people have told me that they that they've applied like. Biocontrols or some sort of chemical um, agent uh, that might not even be like a systemic, you know, or a synthetic chemistry that's really not like noxious. Um, but they're like, why did this not work? And it's like, cause it just doesn't affect the thing that you're targeting, you know? And, you've, and then you've spent like thousands of dollars. Like I could just say use biocontrols, but that doesn't mean anything uh, without knowing the, the greater context. Um, so find out the problem or multiple problems and find out the treatments for those problems. And I know that's, I guess now that I'm saying that, I feel like that sort of useless advice. I feel like I could maybe do better with a more contextual answer or question. But, um, that is really what it, what it boils down to effectively. And then also, I guess I would say this recording what that information is and having a plan in place after the fact, because I know a lot of people who do that, you solve the problem They go, cool. I'll never have to deal with that again. And that's not true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like, so in my mind, in my situation, um, I pull my soil samples, you know, after harvest, um, and I get my reports back from Logan labs. Um, I think this time I'm going to take the route of forwarding those over to the soil doctor and getting his recommendations, amending my soil, doing all of that. Um, and, um, then kind of my process is once I get my clones, I usually source them um you know once i've got them in one gallons and i've got them planted into my my beds and their permanent home and they're vegging um i'll typically do some sap testing uh to see you know are my, my mineral levels there do i have copper to f- to defend against mold and mildew you know do i have sulfur do i have this do i have that um you know this year i'm going to amend uh, some cobalt in there cuz cobalt is something you do very little of and you've you know got very little chance to do so. So I'm going to do that now before months before anything's going to hit the soil. Um, And, you know, that sap testing allows me to do some corrective foliar spraying during veg if I really need to. Um, And I've had great success with that process. I'd say the only other thing that I'm involving there is a once a week feeding of our concentrated biology microbes and microbial foods. Um, You know, I'm just weekly inoculating, um, and obviously during veg, I do some foliar sprays uh with the biology um because the microbe food has uh, humic in it. So it's also a great carrier and a chelator for some of the other minerals that I'm foliar spraying. Um, I'm I'm very successful with this process. Um so far, it, it's it's um, you know, this last year I've grown the best cannabis I've ever grown in my life. And honestly, it almost looks like indoor cannabis. I'm just so blown away by it. Do you see any fatal flaws in my plan or anything you could suggest?
1: No, I mean, I like to tell people that, uh, you know, contexts are different among people. I'm not saying, and that, you know, doesn't mean that somebody, you know, that, oh, you must have it easy. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, you know, a lot of it is just having that regimen, like you're saying, like how, like if you're very preventative, like some places that I work with, they just, they just happen to be in a context where they're always going to deal with massive amounts of pests. And if you're going to grow in that context, then you have a different, threat model yeah. than somebody else does you know yeah. and, uh, and and that's just how it kind of comes down to so you, you always have to keep on your toes and you also don't know you know season to season a place that was good can become worse like we said with the fires right um a place uh, you know so just because you're in a place that's traditionally thought of as nice uh, does not mean it will continue to be nice especially if many people are growing cannabis, uh, when you weren't before, or if like a pest starts sweeping across North America, you know, a spotted lanternfly, for example, um, you know, big problem in the East Coast, we're just waiting for it to finally get into the West Coast and mess up all the, um, orchards and grapes and things like that, you know? So, um, you know, I think that you're it sounds like your circumstance is really good, especially because you take the time to sort of identify your, your situation and, and you know that you've got a process that helps you see uh, different layers of, um, I guess you could say, like, this wasn't as articulate as I thought, but basically breakaway points. When, where are the st- work in the structure fail, essentially? And since you're, since you're assessing sort of a multi- multiple tiers, um, I think that that is actually very comprehensive and, and checking for these comprehensively is like the best thing you can do for prevention.
0: Yeah, yeah, as be preventative and prevent that whole thing from happening. Um, so getting back to one of my other questions, um, is there a tool, a technique, a process we can use for evaluating plant health? Or, or are we going to have to really base it off of our own physical judgment and expertise of looking at one plant and being like, damn, you're super healthy. You've got nice, you know, serrations on your leaves you got the other guy next to it. It's like obviously mineral deficiencies. Is, is there there tools that we can implement or techniques specifically we should be implementing to look at plant health and, and be able to track that data?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you've already mentioned two superb examples checking to see the microbiome that you're dealing with making sure that the microbes that you've inoculated, which I feel like not a lot of people I do.
0: I forgot about that. By
1: the way. Oh yeah. Well, but I, but I knew it, but I knew that you were doing that. I mean, living soil, right. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that's a big one though. Since we're mentioning it here, uh, you might have um, put out a product or microbes into your soil and you think that you've inoculated it, but have you really? Yeah. Do you know that for sure? That's a big one for me as a person who's very passionate about using the microbiome to is most optimal for us. Um, you've got to confirm and reconfirm over time that the, that the population, the consortium that you have is the one that you want. And right now we're kind of at a stage where we don't always know what optimal is, but we do know that this one's good and this one's good and this one's good. And these ones are bad, you know, generally. And so that's, that's, that's an, sort of an ersatz uh, uh, plan. But as we become more and more sophisticated and we understand these complex interactions better, I think we can fine tune and hone it a lot better. And so the only way you can do that is by assessing what your microbiome is, like you're, like you're saying. And also keeping the plant healthy that way as well. Checking for, like you said, in the sap analysis, like obviously things like pH and that sort of a thing, um, uh, your soil, you know, chemistry, your uh, like the, even like down to like the mechanical particulates that you're using right these are all have an effect and they can all be kind of um hyper optimized to a particular way that you're trying to grow essentially what you're trying to get out of the product um I was I actually was going to bring up a different thing so things to um check to make sure that your, your plant health is good well I wrote an article for Skunk Magazine's winter issue. I just actually submitted it. And this, uh, the topic was actually exactly this question. Uh, basically, what is plant health? Um, how do you know that you have good plant health? What is good? What is bad? Yeah. And and I I made the argument in that article that uh, it, it depends, right? That's a cop-out answer for a lot of things. But a lot of times it's sort of a genetic level thing. A plant can have all the nutritional supplements that you give it, even a good microbiome. Well, actually, I'll even I'll actually counter that. It's not actually true. If you don't have the right genes in the plant, it might not even have an interaction with those microbes. Those microbial interactions that happen in domesticated crops Um they are a simplified version of what a lot of those crop plants were able to do in the wild. And their wild ancestors had, a, and oftentimes in a lot of cases, a much better way of filtering through those microbes and finding the ones that are going to be beneficial and getting rid of the ones that are detrimental. And through thousands of years of cultivation, we have unintentionally remove them from the context for which those traits are beneficial. And since all physiological interact, uh, I should say processes are costly, even just regular old metabolism, making those sugars cost resources, right? Growth cost resources, uh, symbiosis cost resources. So over time, those traits go away because they were super costly and they weren't interacting with those microbes and essentially, because the plant could still reproduce and survive because of human cultivation, when they mutated and became dysfunctional and didn't exist, it didn't matter. But now we're learning how to use the microbiome better and we're finding that these domesticated plants don't really have uh, the, the, the same sort of interaction. So that's another aspect of breeding that I'm excited about for cannabis is being able to hone that at a genetic level and then Um, optimizing the plant health that way, making it able to utilize nutrition better, you know, breeding for better microbiome interactions, and that sort of a thing.
0: Nice, nice. I have another thing that popped in my head that I've been trying to remind myself to ask you. Um, Mm. I've seen on Facebook, I've seen on Instagram, I've seen in other podcasts, um, other people Uh, And I know know you're in forte, you're not specifically a soil person. So this is more of a soil scientist kind of question, but more of like commonalities. Are we seeing the same thing? Uh, I see it very common that people report anytime their soil pH, and I'm getting, you know, specifically in soil media, growing living soil, that their soil pH goes to 6.8 or higher, that that's a Um, kind of a look forward or look through that you're probably going to have some pest issues, starting with root aphids and then, you know, other things that are come on down the line. Uh, Is that a big, am I I speaking a myth here or is that you think there's commonality to it or obviously a a gross, you know, understatement of, you know, no science in what I'm saying. It's just, you know, almost a cause and effect.
1: It's a good question. Um, You know, I used to be a lot more ambivalent about that question because I've definitely encountered because I've encountered pests in a lot of different, you know, soilscapes or pHs of soil and that sort of a thing, like I think that it's definitely true. Um that uh like things like the um the the pH and sort of the the EC electrical conductivity, sort of the oxidative um interactions that can be happening in the rhizoplane on the roots. Rhizosphere, the a few millimeters between the, the roots and the soil, you know, that 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 uh world is very lifelike. It's kind of like how the River Nile, you know, there's desert everywhere, but the river Nile is is verdant with with plant life, right? Because of the water. And similarly, the the root area, for example, is gonna be. a a massive highway of microbial interactions and other biological interactions. So because it's so complicated and complex, it's really hard to like assess and and know. pH though, um, some organisms are going to be more, they're going to be more benefited from having one pH over another, but a lot of microbes will be able to sort of eke out an existence in a place because it's not homogenous, right? Because the pH that we're testing for I mean, I mean that, uh, how do I say this? Those qualities will change like, you know, from one centimeter to another kind of a thing. So you can have a situation where maybe the pH is high in one place, but low in another place, or depending on how you're taking that reading, it can sort of homogenize the, 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 the soil and um you don't really necessarily know if it's going to be if it really is that way. So I guess it kind of depends on how you're testing too. But I don't think it's to, it's not totally wrong. I guess I'm giving kind of a a complicated answer to a complicated
0: question. <laughs> it is a complicated question. It's a complicated situation and um I think the the moral of the story is your pH and your EC is something you should be looking at. Absolutely. And, and if you're sitting around your grow and you got nothing else to do but grow, maybe you should be taking some of those things and writing them down and and being a responsible person and follow, having a journal about this stuff and, you know, relating that to strains. strains, um, you know, and me over here encouraging people to, co- you know, to 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 capture data that I don't do myself even. So, yeah, I, you know, it's it's a lot harder to preach people. I mean, it's a lot harder to do what you preach. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I have to that, agree with that. Yeah. So I got a question for you, um, kind of a two-parter. Is there anything we, t- we didn't touch on today that you really wanted to touch on previously leading up to this?
1: No, because you were a good host and you let me talk way too much about, um, you know, kind of rabbit hole topics. So you actually allowed me to do that, which I appreciate.
0: Cool. Cool. Like I said, in the beginning, well, you know, these one-on-one interactions really allow us to get out the most of our thoughts, which is, which is great. Um, And I ask everybody on this podcast, um, who is other people that you would love to see on here? Something that you would even yourself would want to click on and listen to or watch.
1: Hmm. You know, after having a conversation with um, uh, Trevor, sun grown mids with a Z on instagram um that was a really enriching conversation on clubhouse like you had reference um he might be a, a really interesting person to bring on um uh, talking you're talking about breeding and genes and that sort of a thing um let's see well if you haven't talked to uh russ brandon my, my buddy brandon he is um uh very, very interesting and is looking at a lot of interesting soil mechanics and dynamics and he's very passionate about that. He might be a very interesting person to put on as well. Um, and now I feel like if I don't mention 20 other people, I'm going to offend a bunch of people as well, but, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of cool people. Um, you know, Marco, if you haven't, I'm going to be talking with Marco from Marco is growing, uh, in the future cannabis project tomorrow, actually. Um, So, you know, he would be a good person that he talked, he's cold IMO and, and uh, he's very passionate about the living soil uh, techniques that we talked about here. So I think he would also be very, uh, uh, very fitting.
0: Okay. Perfect. All right, man. Well, we got a good, you know, well over an hour here and we went through some amazing information and I, I definitely feel Um, this is probably something we'll have to do maybe once a year or once every year or two, just to kind of update ourselves because these things are a a changing thing. And, you know, there's so much data being collected right now and learned. And like you said, now we have universities, you know, able to study this plant and, and really learn about things and, and you know the people like biomakers every day there's one or two new classifications of microbes they learn about and figure out you know what they source for the plant so Mm -hmm. i just imagine you know where we are you know a couple years from now is going to be really cool so i definitely plan on inviting you on again in the future matthew gates um thank you so much for coming on and um and feel free if you can if you can go over um any ways we can reach out to you again, Anyways, any any of your social medias, any way we can get a hold of you and get involved with you, please go ahead and repeat those for us.
1: Absolutely. And I really appreciate the opportunity and I'd love to come on again. Um, I'm very passionate about sustainable agricultural practice and uh, it's been honestly surreal to be able to influence even the modicum of people that I have been able to reach out to, uh, yourself included, Tyler. You can find some of my content related to that, on my youtube channel zenthanol you can contact me professionally uh as part of a i'm the consultant and founder of zenthanol consulting zenthanol.com is where you can reach me there you can also reach me on instagram at SyncAngel angel and also on twitter at SyncAngel.
0: angel awesome and he's got 22k followers go be a follower guys learn from him so yeah thank you very much i appreciate you um Don't forget everybody to, uh, you know, give us a rating. If you're on um, Apple iTunes, you know, that's, that's really how we get this stuff out here and get it going. And, and please share this podcast with your friends on social media. um, And I'd love to share that too. Uh, So thank you so much for everybody's interaction. And thank you so much, Matthew. You're, you're an awesome knowledge, knowledge point here. So
1: I really appreciate it, Tyler. Thank you so much.
0: Right.